Welcome to Haunting History, the podcast that reaches back into the past for the events that shocked everyone. Tales of true crime, mystery, and the macabre. And when we're lucky, the stories were history and the people who lived it and the paranormal meet. Now who doesn't live a good ghost story, right? Welcome back to Haunting History Podcast. I'm your host, Kat, and I'm here this week with Haley. Hi. And we wanted to fill you in what's going to be going on, what's coming up. Firstly, we did the podcast on the narco bank robbery, and I hope that you all enjoyed that. But I want to let you know that on our episode webpage, or you can just access it by going to our website, the author of the book Narco 80, Mr. Houlihan, is going to be um, at local libraries and bookstores um, to Southern California doing readings and signings his book. So that list is on our website and on the episode webpage. And then also I've, I've added to it on the places and times that Deputy Ralph Parks, the one who did the interview with us, is going to be at too. So you can go, if you're in the area and you were interested in the Norco Bank robbery, you can go there and, and talk to the author of the book and meet Deputy Ralph Parks. And then today we aren't going to do, we aren't doing a regular episode. We want to play you an interview that we did with Todd Matthews. And if you aren't familiar, he is associated with the Doe Network. Have you ever, you've just recently went on it, right, Haley? Yeah, since you started having contact with him. Did you get sucked into the rabbit hole? Were you just scrolling through it for endless amounts of time? Yeah, and it was easy for me to do that because I'm on the true crime spectrum. I am like so into missing persons and like Jane Doe's and stuff. Like that's my wheelhouse for sure. I know, and I was going to, if anyone's like us, Every time I've been, I've been on going on the Doe Network. It's Doe as in John and Jane Doe, D O E Network dot org, and it is a you'll see you can you will fall down the rabbit hole like I said, and you can scroll through case files of missing persons and John and Jane Doe's, and we're going to talk to Todd Matthews, and he is going to explain to our listeners what the Doe Network is, what NamUs is. And when I say NamUs, it's N-A-M-U-S dot gov. Both of those websites I encourage you to go take a look at. But like if you're like Haley and I set aside some time to do so, um, he's going to explain to us the what the Doe Network is and what NamUs is. And we are going to be taking a little bit of a break for the next few weeks. It's not really a break, but what we're going to do is we're doing research on a couple of stories from the Doe Network that are something like 30, 35 years old. And we're trying to get the police files and I've been talking to the detectives. So I want to make sure that I bring you a really good story of um, some missing people and some Jane and John Does. So stay tuned. We, again, will be missing for just a few weeks while we do this research. But stay in touch. Check out our website. Uh, join us on Instagram and on Facebook. And while we're taking our little break, please help us out by doing um, rating us and reviewing us. Reviews help us more than you could possibly know. And I'm going to go ahead and stop talking now and let you listen to the interview with Todd Matthews. Hi, Todd. Hello. How are you? Good. Tell us about the Doe Network. So it's it's one of a, a few things that I work on. Uh, Doe Network was an organization first to begin as a website for unidentified persons, John and Jane Doe's, that had 
evolved into missing persons. Um, I'm one of the early members, you could say founding members, as we all brought pieces of the puzzle and created an organization out of it. Uh, so it's, it's been around since around 2001 in its current state. So it's been around for a long time. And it's really handy. It's an international organization. And by organization, I really mean it is web-based. So a lot of us have never even met each other. That's and so interesting. And currently on the day-to-day, um, I don't really do that much with Doe Network on the day-to-day. I hear from them. Uh, they keep us posted with a lot of the uh, tips and leads that they have. They actually work with our staff at NamUs. So it, it's a good thing I need to keep going, but I can't work with NamUs and Doe Network on a daily basis. So I kind of have to keep a little div- division in between. And the volunteers do their thing, and NamUs kind of does its thing. So NamUs is a different organization than the Doe Network, but they work together. Absolutely. And not officially. You know, the Doe Network is a volunteer organization. It's been around for some time, international cases. And what they do is a little different. You know, they create these posters for the missing and unidentified that is just basically surface data. It's not the dental records, DNA, or fingerprints. It's not that type of data. NamUs is a National Institute of Justice program. I was asked to be on the working group to develop the program back in 2007. I joined it. I joined the working group. We spent a couple of years finishing up the work with NamUs, and then I became uh, a staff member of NamUs. So the Doe Network is a volunteer organization and NamUs is a federal entity. It's a federal program. It's a, federal. a federally funded program. And the difference between the two is that the Doe Network helps with the exposure, but were you saying that the that NamUs actually helps with the forensics part of missing people? Actually, NamUs will fund the forensics. So there's a certain amount of money that we have every year, not only for operations, salaries, uh, travel, everything that we have to have to run the program plus it pays for dental um dental categorization so we will upload dental charts directly into namus fingerprints the same way they go directly into namus and we actually fund the dna at the university of north texas health science center um university UNTCHI, the center for human id is actually the name of the the dna lab and namus will fund that so the dna is in codis now, there's a, a, it doesn't go into NamUs. It goes into CODIS through the lab. NamUs pays for it, and this is a common misunderstanding. NamUs will pay for it. It's funded by NamUs, facilitated by NamUs. NamUs staff will uh, initiate the collection of DNA or driving the DNA to the right place, but the DNA is not stored in NamUs. It is stored in CODIS, which is the FBI DNA database. We do keep a note in NamUs file telling us the location of the DNA and what samples that we have from family members. So tell us how that would help for people who are missing missing someone. They can go in they can go through NamUs and have their DNA done and then matched up through CODIS with a missing and identified Jane and John Doe's. So here's exactly what I would do for you. You're in California, correct? Yes. So what I would do if you had a missing loved one, say your sister, I would have our staff our name is Stapper, and we actually have one in California. We would have her to facilitate the collection of the DNA with DNA kits that we pay for. She or law enforcement could collect the sample. It's a cheek swab from you. That cheek swab sample is called a buckle swab. It would go into the CODIS database, and it would be compared against John and Jane Doe's only. So should your sister be among the unidentified decedents, your DNA would match as an association. 
So CODIS would say this individual and this individual have very similar DNA, and those results would be sent to the law enforcement agency, and they would make the identification. It's kind of complicated, but it's really not. It's really not that complicated. Now, how many John and Jane Does are there every year in the United States? So I think I've read different statistics on this. Around 4,400, I think, are found every year. But a very small percentage of them actually go into long-term cases. So currently, we probably have around 13,000 in NamUs that are published cases, cases that are current open cases in NamUs as John and Jane Doe's. But there has been surveys over the years that said there could be up to 40,000. Wow. And we find these all the time. You know, uh, recently in Texas, we found, you know, somebody sent me a photo of a grave. I don't mean like a couple of years ago. And it was a John Doe case. So it was a legitimate case, and, and that's something that uh, we'll follow the tracks back and, and find out, you know, at what point was this recorded with law enforcement? You know, was there ever – you know, we're going back in times where it's before digital. These are hard copy reports. So sometimes it's not a – you know, an Internet search might not do it. They might not be digital files. So that means that there was a John or Jane Doe in California that nobody reported missing. And it doesn't, was DNA, but in that case, DNA wasn't even taken from the missing person if it was that long ago, was it? It could. I mean, uh, it could be before DNA was actually a thing, you know, that, that, and that's not been so long ago. You know, some of these cases are over 30 years old. A lot of them are over 30 years old. So some of the common practices that we see as common today were really new back in those days. So how is it? a lot of times the John Does and Jane Does were buried before the DNA sample was collected because they didn't know to collect the DNA sample. How has DNA, uh, like mainstream DNA, people taking their DNA and DNA becoming such a dead thing now, how has that changed the Doe Network and NamUs? Well, it is. It's making it, um, it, it's lowered the number of newer cases because we're able to apply technology right up front. And some of the older cases, it's a matter of going back. And Doe Network's really good about if you have a case that's just really not documented very well, you know, they're really good at finding scraps of evidence and old newspapers and just shreds of data, maybe going to the library and finding something that was in a forgotten newspaper article and, and bringing those things to investigators. So they've been really, really, really successful at doing that it's just i don't feel like doe network and namus do the same thing you know they suggest possible matches to doe network to namus all the time they will look at missing and unidentified and they will try to find ways that this person could be this person or they'll have a family member that will approach them and suggest that john or jane doe could be my sister and you know they'll pass that information along to namus or law enforcement to make sure the leads are checked out doe network's really good about not just sending things that are just repetitive. They they research things, they document what they've sent, so they're not sending in the same matches over and over and over and over. You know, they really take a hard look at it. And how many? The Doe Network is one hundred percent volunteer. How many volunteers work for the Doe Network? There have been all kinds of numbers. There's a lot of people that signed up to be on the uh, mailing list. You know, on the message board at all levels of participation. You'll have people that will be there for a year that do a lot of different things and then they're tired of it after a year. It's a little more work than they anticipated. Uh, we've had some that's hung in there for 20 years now, almost 20 years that are still there every day doing whatever they can. Technology has changed it. You know, when Doe Network was new, the internet was still relatively new. So it was rather cutting edge at the time. 
Uh, a lot of law enforcement agencies didn't have a website. You know, they didn't, you know, nowadays every agency has some degree of a web presence, whether they have a database or just some content information put on the web. This is back in the day when there wasn't any. This is back in the day when law enforcement turned it on network because they had no alternative to say, hey, will you put our John and Jane Doe online? Will you help market this for us, for lack of a better word? Mm. And a lot of it came from, you know, Tent Girl. Tent Girl was my first case. Um, you know, it was a body found by my father-in-law in 1968. I found out about it at 17 in 1987. And by 1998, after being married for 10 years, I found her sister looking for her online. And that was the first time the Internet was used to solve that type of case. So at the time, it was still like shock. The Internet is not just a passing fad. The Internet is going to be a real tool for communications. If nothing else, it's a good way to transmit data. I think it looked like the newfangled passing fad to a lot of people at the time. And then when it was proven to be a very effective communication tool, uh, resource management tool, I think people really started getting on board after that. And I was really happy to be part of that. You know, I, I had no idea at the time that that was a, a first time, but that, that was my college. That, that was what gave me the opportunity to learn and bring resources to law enforcement that we find common today. So that ask, was really good. I was going to ask you about Tent Girl. I wanted to um, figure out. I don't know that a lot of people know what the Doe Network is, but that ah. that was an exact. The Doe Network was completely put together. Ultimately, was because of Tent Girl, and I don't know that a lot of people know who Tent Girl is. I know that there's other podcasts that have done the story of Tent Girl. But and it's easily found on, on a Google search. I mean, that was my reason for my investment in Doe Network. Other people, you know, there's other John and Jane Doe's that have people's interest. And, you know, I think the Tent Girl was what got a lot of people's attention, even though they might have had their own causes and reasons behind it. Tent Girl was like the bell that rung and everybody noticed each other, I and think. So that was, I, I didn't know any other web sleuths until Tent Girl and then, it was just like fireflies coming out of the woods. I started hearing from people all over the world. I felt very alone and isolated up until that point in time. And I think I'd been on the internet for probably three years, but it was such a different internet back in 1997, 1996. It was so different than it is now. I don't think people, kids now understand how different it was. It was very plain, very vanilla. I talked to a group of students today in seventh grade and, uh, you know, it was just almost impossible for them to realize the world without the internet. Right. I mean, yeah, we start, we decide like we want to know what a word means and it's at our fingertips. We don't have to go to the yeah. library and get it. I mean, I've adapted well to it. You know, if I want to know something, I ask Siri, I go to Google, I, I can look it up. I know, you know, I remember when the internet first, and I was one of the first people in town that had it. I remember after solving the tent girl case and I was still working at my old job there were people that knew I had the internet that didn't have computers and internet yet. They would have things. Hey, have you ever looked this up? Well, I've heard of this. I never knew what this was. Uh, you know, or they didn't have a dictionary that would tell them, you know, cause we had a set of encyclopedias. If it wasn't in that, it was beyond our knowledge. Right, for sure. Back in the day. I mean, and you know, it's one volume. I still have a set of encyclopedias in my mom and dad's house. That, that was my, my internet back in the day. If it wasn't in there, it did not exist. Uh, you know, I learned about other countries. I remember a lady I worked with uh, wanted to look up the black hole of Calcutta. She always heard that said in phrases. When she would talk to people, she would hear people say something like that. She didn't know what it was. Um, you know, just things that you hear that seem so common to us today. People were like, what does this mean? 
Right. And you, you would tell them, you know, I, I would, I'd literally get a list of things that I would look up for people. And I, this means this. Oh. Uh, it was crazy. But I mean, it's when people really started talking to each other. It's not the it's not so much the investigative skills as it was the communication access, people talking to people across the planet in a snap. I mean, I shouldn't even know you in my world. If I wasn't part of what I'm doing today, you and I wouldn't know each other. Right. And that is kind of, I don't, I don't know that kids or anybody under the age of, I don't know, 24 probably understands the difference that we've gone through in our life when it comes to technology and being able to do the things that we do. Well, I remember when we got our first microwave, I think I was eight years old, maybe just a little bit older, but it's still, still thinking back to, we had to do this a different way. The microwaves have become such a standard. So the internet's kind of become, it's, it's always been there. Um, it's just the generations born today are born with the internet. Right. It- my grandson is 18 months old, my youngest grandson. And a world without an Alexa would be really strange to him because we will say, Alexa, play lullabies. And he tries to say, Alexa, he's trying to make that, that box play the song he wants it to play. But he's, he's, no, he's not really talking that well yet. So he's struggling. So he don't know a world without Alexa. Alexa is going to be one of those givens for him. Well, going back to like what you're saying is that before the Internet, you were, first of all, tent girl, Barbara Ann. Hackman, correct? Yes, Barbara Ann Hackman Taylor. Um, was Taylor her married name? It was, and it was not even a real name. That was a false name that he had. So Barbara Ann Hackman then. Yeah, what, I, I, for me, she's Barbara Hackman. How? What made you become obsessed with that case? Well, I remember it was, it was October of 1987 when my future wife, I met her in the high school that I often teach at. And my son, my second son is going to graduate in just a few days at, at that same school. Um, I met her. They were new students from northern Kentucky, her and two of her sisters. And I remember sitting by one of my best friends at the time. And the first thing I said when I saw her, I said, that's the girl I'm going to marry. And it wasn't because it was like, oh, that I'm so struck by that person. She looked familiar to me. I don't even know how to describe it. It was like I recognized her as who she was going to be for that brief moment. Uh, that's that's the girl I'm going to marry. And I, it was like somebody else said it. And then she ended up in study hall with me that afternoon. And, of course, I think we were both really gravitated towards each other. We we started talking immediately. I, I just felt, And then she started talking about Tent Girl because it was around Halloween, and we were talking about ghost stories. And she says, well, you know, because Tent Girl at the time, she had become almost an urban legend in their town. She was the girl that nobody ever identified. So we were 20 years in on her then. So there was ghost stories. Colleges would send their uh, sorority students out to do a rubbing of the tombstone where they would get a piece of paper and rub it, and they'd have to go out at midnight and do it. And the proof that they were at the grave was they did a rubbing of the tombstone. So it was almost, is this fact or fantasy? You know, she'd become a ghost story more than she had become a person. And that story was just fascinating to me, and it just it also sounded very familiar. It's like the whole family felt very familiar to me. And I think Lori felt the same way. It was just like it was a fit. And then when her family, their home burned here in Tennessee, and they moved back to the Kentucky area, and Lori just said, I'm not going back. And we were married within nine months of, of meeting each other, and we've been married 31 years. Wow. So it worked. It worked. So uh, – 
but that was just, uh, you know, just becoming, you know, I wanted to visit her grave. And then we had to, if I wanted to Google Tent Girl, I got in my car and drove 160 miles to Georgetown, Kentucky. I went to a library and pulled out a box with microfilms on it and looked at old newspaper articles. You mentioned microfilm to students today. They're like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. So that was, I think all of that was my college for what I'm doing today all of that hard work at the time, I was learning how to do some of the things that I have to do today. And uh, it was just funny. I didn't know it was like life was a dress rehearsal uh, for doing that. It's like when I look back now, it's like things were laid out just step by step by step, you know, almost like it was coordinated, but it, it wasn't. I mean, it was literally stumbling from spot to spot. For 10 years. For, for 10 years. And then it was just like, wow, okay, now I know why I did this. Or I learned how to do this from that struggle that I thought was going to kill us. And at the time, long distance was not free and unlimited on a cell phone. There were no cell phones. I remember getting cell phone, I mean, uh, telephone bills from trying to call long distance and getting other people to look in a drawer for me and having very high phone bills. It would be like 15 cents a minute, 12, 15 cents a minute. You're on the phone for a couple of hours. And then Lori's family lived long distance. We would have really high phone bills for minimum wage workers. You know, that was like, wow, our phone bill was more than our car payment. And so, you and you wouldn't let and, it go. And all that's gone now. That Those obstacles, those financial obstacles with long distance, what students don't understand today is that's all gone now. There are no long distance fees. We pay a flat rate for everything. And the struggles of the day, people just don't understand. So I guess what we did doesn't seem that phenomenal now. But you look back at all of the hard things that we had to overcome. I mean, we... We were on the internet on dial-up, you know, and that was hard. People would call and knock you offline. It was so hard to do the dial-up, and, and the data speed was so much slower than now. It was just insane. It was a different internet. Well, that's why, it took you to that. that's why it took you 10 years. You were on dial-up. It, 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 it took a long time, and I, I didn't get on broadband until well after Denver. So I, I have a question. Before we get back to the Doe Network and um, to NamUs, um, what – how did you feel like once Tent Girl was solved, once you gave Barbara back her name and I, the the mission of Doe Network says that um, it's, it's to give the nameless back their names and return the missing to their families. That's exactly what you did with Barbara Ann. Mm -hmm. How did you feel once you did that? Once it was confirmed through through DNA, correct? That That's yes. who she was. How did you feel? Phew. Okay, that's good. You know, and, and I thought I would go back to my world and she would go to her world, you know, and her family, uh, the newspaper article that a, a family recover body, uh, I had no idea. And I remember that day at the courthouse when there was people from all over the world, um, there were people that said, you don't have any idea how your life is going to change, do you? And it's like, no, I do not. I'm 27 years old. I have no idea. And I thought they were crazy. You know, I thought, this will be over. This is like flash in the pan. This will be over. And it did take a while from 1997 to 2007. So there was still a 1998. So there was still like nine years there of still evolution. Uh, the, you know, Donut were coming along, managing it, helping the other directors manage the, the Donut work. It got the government's attention. And, you know, I knew they were kind of watching along and they were seeing us use adapted technology. Like the Internet was created for this. But we're going to use it for that. And I thought, you know, we did get their attention, and they finally knocked on my door and said, hey, uh, we'd like for you to be a part of it. So I guess at the time, I was more of a subject matter expert in Internet and using the Internet to do things that you're not supposed to do with it. So I'm not even near that expert now because the Internet's changed. It's such a different world. 
it's like learning um, printing versus cursive. You know, I'm, I'm certainly maybe I'm still an expert in print, but I'm not an expert in uh, calligraphy. You know, it's a whole different world now, but I had to grow and evolve with it as well. You know, I had to learn how to do other things the hard way. It was often really, really the hard way. Would you call yourself an armchair detective back during that time? I would at the time. I would at the time, but it was like I, there were missions involved, and it wasn't like I picked the case and I'm going to do this one. There was a connection with Tent Girl through family. Um, you know, there was just such a connection with her that I felt like I was the only one that, that wanted to help her or was willing to try something new. Like I said, the Internet might as well have been an iPod back into some of the people that were well involved in law enforcement. It's just this new thing that's coming out. It'll come and go. I don't think anybody thought it would ever be this valuable for communications and investigative tools. Now everybody's got email. I remember when everybody started getting email, it was Lotus Notes, and it was the big deal. You had to know how to just send an email with an attachment, and now that's not child's play. (laughs) Email with an attachment? (laughs) My six-year-old can do that. So – if what do you want the public to know about the Doe Network? What do you want the average Joe to know about the Doe Network or um, NamUs? Well, I think I want people to know that the Doe Network is still there. Um, it still has a purpose, I think, and it can still help lead people to resources. Uh, it's a good volunteer effort if people want to spend the time pouring through case files and enriching them and improving them, and just it's a good way to volunteer. If you want to volunteer in missing an unidentified name, us can't really take any volunteers. It's a government database, so there's not really like the volunteer factor. So Doe Network's good for that. And they're always so super quick to point people to law enforcement resources or to name us. They, I don't see them crossing lines like maybe some other groups might do. You know, there are groups out there that maybe I wish they hadn't done that. That's just a little far, you know, into that. And I think Doe Network kind of knows where to pull back and, let law enforcement take control. And it's just hard, and they, they keep up with things so well. They know what they've submitted as possible matches. They know what they've researched. They'll email me, hey, here's a picture of that John Doe's ring. It was in the newspaper, and it might not have been in the medical examiner file, or maybe they didn't think it was important at the time You know, to include a piece of jewelry. That's one of the first things I said when I started working with the working group. That's not just a gold-toned band with a black stone. That's a 10-karat gold band with a black marcasite stone. That's not the ring I got on my finger. I would hardly call it gold ring black stone. I would describe it as it was. And, uh, you know, I think that's important. And sometimes law enforcement would have holdback data that they'd call their ace in the hole. Like, we know this tattoo exists on this person, and the family will know that, and that'll be how we know that the right person has come forward. It's like, well, it's been 30 years now, so we might want to... Let that information out. We might, want, we might want to just put that out there, and I feel like put as much information out as you can possibly do without interfering in a homicide investigation. It, just share as much data as possible. You'll have to filter some things because you're going to get things that are not always very helpful, but, I mean, it's better to get leads than none. What um, do you – you learn how to do that. You learn how to kind of filter through the nonsense, you know, you, and it's not as bad as what I think we would have thought it would be. You know, you get tons of emails, and some of them are not very helpful, but some are. You know, some are. What do you, what is your advice to someone who does have a missing person in their family? 
So if you do have a missing person in your family, you need to look on NamUs.gov to see that it's on there. If it's not on there, if that person is not listed in NamUs, you can change that because we created NamUs so that you could make your own entry. You can actually create a case, a login, and enter your own missing person. And that's probably one of the very few, if not the only, government databases that allows the public. So you can't just say it's not uh, it's law enforcement's fault they didn't do it. Well, if you see that they didn't do it, it's not been done, and you don't do it too, then you know what? That person means more to you than anybody else in the world. Don't wait for somebody else to do it, especially in some of these older cases. We might not even know you exist if you don't enter a case into NamUs. Hmm. And once you do that, we're going to vet it with law enforcement. You know, we don't just publish cases entered by the public just right off the bat. You know, we're going to connect with the investigating agency to see, you know, is this accurate? Is this a true case? Did you actually get a report on this person? Do we need to back up and let you take a report first? We might have to do a lot of different things like that, but that's what we're here to do. That's what we were created to do, to fill in those gaps. Would you know, off, you probably don't know this off the top of your head, I probably should have emailed you first. How many of the cold cases are like 30 years or more older? I wouldn't know it off the top of my head, but a lot of these long, long, a lot of these cases that have been in the system for a while are probably in that borderline time frame, more than 30 years old. We have a lot of cases that are old cases, and it, it's these missing pieces, the lack of a dental record. You know, when I go to the dentist now, I tell them, can you email me my dental x-rays? Just Back in the day, that wasn't possible. And sometimes they would reuse, uh, you know, some of the, the, the films. Uh, they wouldn't keep them. But now that our digital storage is so huge because of the Internet and storage devices, they can keep tons of records in such a small space instead of these hard copy dental records that they eventually just had to throw away or put in some type of storage where they would, you know, just crumble away. Now it's digital storage. So there's so many things that have changed. I think the path forward is very clear. We have the tools, we have the resources, we have the ways to pay for the resources. It's these cases that just didn't get everything they needed at the time that we got to keep going back to and make sure. So the backlog is, is bigger than hopefully what's in front of us because we have the tools now. We know what to apply. It's that missing persons report that we never heard of and is the key. Those are the missing pieces. Do you think, what do you contribute as the reason of why people wouldn't report someone missing? Sometimes it's as simple as this. You can have a person that's missing and they were in between point A and point B, maybe in another state. What if you don't know exactly where they were? They were going from Paducah, Kentucky to McAllen, Texas. Where were they last known to be? I don't know. They left Paducah. They never showed up in McAllen. So who takes the report? So they just don't know where to report it. They don't know where to report it to, or they might tell an agency, well, we really don't know where they were. Um, so so I think NamUs is really good with that because we can connect multiple agencies to a case. Maybe this is a, a Kentucky, Arkansas, Texas type situation where three agencies are involved in it, just to have the information and to share it with each other. It's more than just taking the case so that you can help the family uh, by taking the case, it's it's facilitating this case management, sharing the data with each other so that you can find that other piece. And, you know, using the technology the way it was designed is, is really a good thing. Uh, we've got all the bases covered. We're not trapped by these small jurisdictions now. We're looking at the country as an entire country as opposed to uh, city, county, state level. You know, we're taking away those boundaries. Now, how does law enforcement 
not now how um law enforcement works with NamUs, correct? Like they use for the most part, for the most part. And a lot of the rural agencies are the agencies that don't know about us. You know, so I think the big excuse for not having worked with NamUs is very often they know about it. You know, I hear that all the time. Like, oh, this we've not had a missing persons report that's went into this time period in a long time. Because you know, they're usually resolved very quickly. Some states have passed state law, my home state in Tennessee, if you're missing and unidentified for 30 days, missing or unidentified, you go into the name of state events, period. That's it. So that has cemented us going forward. Um, it's still, we still have these decades old cases. It's like, yeah, but we still got this person that's been missing since 1963. Could there be in another state? We still have this Jane Doe that was found in 1974. Could she be from another country? Uh, we don't know. So we have to go back and continually publicize in those cases. Uh, get the DNA into the CODIS system if possible. If, if there were something that's left, find out what happened to the body. Were they buried? Were they cremated? Um, are they in an evidence closet somewhere? Um, I don't know. You know, that's what we have to do. We have to find the unidentified. Where are they at? What do we need to do? So how many states are not participating in this currently? I think every state participates to some degree. It's down to the local county level. That's that's where it's at, you know. There's uh, if we find a county that's like, wow, that county has 16 missing persons and that none of them are entered into NamUs, you know, we could do a little outreach to them and make sure that they've heard about us. We do state trainings all the time. I have a staff member now that's in Mississippi. She was just in Kentucky last week, and they're training with law enforcement. And we ask law enforcement, there will be maybe 20 people from various parts of the state. Go back and tell your friends. Go back and encourage your sister agency next door to sign up for NamUs and get their missing person. So a lot of it's word of mouth. You know, you teach them. You give them tools. We give them the business cards. Um, anything that they might need. And it's like, go back and tell your, your partners. Make sure that they can sign it with NamUs and we can provide them the resources that you've already paid for with your tax dollars. How, you've already paid for these. How does the public help to get more of these agencies involved? And in, it, it's probably a lot of it is even just logistics for the smaller law enforcement agencies to have someone that can sit there and enter all the information about whatever missing persons files they have. Is that correct? And I'm sure some agencies do have volunteers. Their volunteers are vetted only through them. You know, I've seen agencies that do do that where they will let people enter basic data. That's strictly up to the local agency. If they want to vet somebody to have access to make those entries in house, you know, that's up to them. But uh, a lot of the things that the volunteers are good for are the public. I'll say not specifically a volunteer uh, to share these news articles. You know, what drives the news. How many stories have, have been downloaded? So when we have a story that's been downloaded so many times that it gets the, the, the news organization's attention, they're going to come back and say, hey, do you have another missing persons case? Because I want to run another story. Uh, I want to run another story. So that's good. So making those numbers, so statistics rise by sharing those cases and getting people talking, we're showing the news agencies what we want to read. And you that will get that. other that by what they're reading. And then the law enforcement agencies that are not in it learn about it, and then they can yes. to start to participate. So reading it. Uh, I've had people that will that will forward cases. If they see a news article about NamUs in a state, they'll forward it to their local agency. So if it's in Nashville, Tennessee, somebody in Knoxville sees it, they might forward it to Knoxville and say, hey, did you see what Nashville's doing? And then you might get a call from that local agency say, hey, could you do a training with us, or could you provide more information? And it's like, yes, we will do that. It's, a, you know, build it and they will come. But I think they'll come when they need it. Like, not everybody, I'm in a very small town in Tennessee, and right now there's that one open, no, 
three three open cases of missing persons right now. One's a 15-year-long case. The other is about two years old. Uh, there's leads on all of it, but it's so rare uh, to have a missing person case here. They're all in NamUs, of course, but the local agency, when you're looking for somebody in these rural areas, the first thing they think of is not NamUs. A national database, they're not thinking about that because it's so infrequent. There is no cold case missing persons unit in some of these agencies. Some of the agencies don't have fingerprint expert or forensic dentist available. We have them. If you don't have one, you can borrow ours. So we try to use our forensic resources to supplement what you don't have. We don't want to replace what you do have. We want to give you what you don't have. So and you paid for it. You've all have paid for it. So sharing stories, sharing stories and is there like like congressmen or your senators that you could call and say, hey, what's it going to take to get your agency working with NamUs? You can. Now, several states have passed the law. It was Tennessee, New York, Illinois, Michigan, New Mexico, Oklahoma. I think Arkansas has passed it. Um, Pennsylvania and West Virginia are probably very close. So if you're in a state, you can actually contact your state representatives, not your U.S. representatives for your state, but your district state reps, and tell them, hey, have you heard about NamUs? And here, this state's passed this state law. You can Google it, Google state law, NamUs, Tennessee. You can find that fairly easily, and I can provide it to you that you can share with I, your I will definitely put it on our website, because that's a perfect way for the public to be able to help. I mean, there's so many people that are interested in true crime and web sleuths and armchair detectives that the one concrete way that they can help is to make sure that every unidentified person is entered yeah. into a database That's where everybody can access. That's the I have right now is for, because, you know, it, we can't go state to state. We can respond when states want to do something. And we have the language that other states have successfully used. If they want to reach out because they're the one with the power there, they're the voters, they're the constituents, they're the ones that could say, hey, I want my state to do this too. In fact, I've already paid for it. I want to make sure we're using what we paid for. I want to make sure we're getting a return on our investment with our tax dollars. Um, and it's and it's so easy. There's really so little excuse not to use it. So that's, I can't think of an excuse not to use it. So that's an excellent way to, to get the public's help is to get them to contact yes. their state representative and, and ask them if they're involved in NamUs and to help. And it don't matter if somebody else has already contacted another representative in that state. They'll start working together. They'll be a sponsor and then they'll be a co-sponsor. They'll get together. They'll talk about it. They'll reach out to NamUs. We'll provide data to them and it'll just be on and on. You know, it'll take a little while. It's usually not overnight. It takes a while to get it through the process, but at least they're talking about NamUs in the meantime, which is good. That's great. At least they're, they're realizing what NamUs is and they're realizing and the value in the meantime so slow and steady it's good i don't know what we would do if all 50 states passed it tomorrow we wouldn't have the resources but as states are passing it we're able to grow our staff for the need we're able to say okay we're going to have to add another regional program specialist we have seven we need eight um now we're going to the point we need 10 and right. we're accommodating the need so we're slowly growing into uh, more and more people starting to use the system, which is really, really good. And I think it's going to grow. It's going to continue to grow. I just kind of need to speed it up a little, but not too fast. You know, we don't we don't want to overwhelm ourselves and let things fall through the cracks. We want to make sure it's just slow and steady growth and we're reaching everybody that we need to reach. And it's soon. These families are suffering. They're looking for their loved ones. Uh, there's an empty chair at the table. You know, so we want to end that as quickly as possible. And the nameless need their names back. 
the nameless needs their names back. So that's what I'll do is I'll include on our website for this episode a list of the state representatives for, I'm sure it'll be an easy search, for every state. And you can call your state representative and ask them if they are working with NamUs and help give the nameless back their names. And I can give them the link to the website. Uh, you can give them our contact information. Any state representative gives me a call. I'm happy to tell them about it. I just can't go to them. Their voters have to go to them. The people that they That's serve perfect. have to go to them and have them come to us so that we can tell them everything. So uh, I'll talk to 49 of them tomorrow. If, if they come to me, I'd be happy to do it. Well, that's what we'll do then. And in the meantime, we um, chose two of your um, of the cold cases from the Doe, Doe Network mm-hmm. uh, for California. I had them send me two stories from cold cases from California. So our next couple episodes will be the stories of the two of the missing people that, that from 1979, I believe they're both from 1979 that are cold cases and missing people. So we're going to do those two stories next. So I might be calling you again to help me with both of those. Always happy. There's, uh, this is, it's perfect to do this. I think we have to fight this battle at every level. Uh, if I'm doing Good Morning America or doing a podcast, it's, there's, it, we'll take every top opportunity we have to do this. Thank you so much for doing this with me today. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. The Doe Network is a 100% volunteer organization devoted to assisting investigating agencies in bringing closure to national and international cold cases concerning missing and unidentified persons. It's their mission to give the nameless back their names and return the missing to their families. You can visit the Doe Network at doenetwork.org. Name us. Their mission is to bring people, information, forensic science, and technology together. Name us helps resolve missing, unidentified, and unclaimed persons throughout the United States. You can visit the NamUs website at NamUs, N-A-M-U-S, dot gov. Thank you for listening to this episode of Haunting History Podcast. Be sure to like, follow, and comment on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Haunting History Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to all your favorites. Visit our website at hauntinghistorypodcast.com for more information on each episode. Until next time, I'm Kat, and remember, the living are far scarier than any ghost. 